For the week of April 11th, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On the show this week, we kick off recess week with something a little bit different. Uh, oh, by the way, should I should I bring the bell back? Yep, there it is. Uh, we begin this week's show with a presentation from a member of Indivisible Washington's 8th District about best practices at a rally or picketing event. And then we talk with David McDevitt, who is a Democrat running for Congress in Washington's 3rd District. And as per usual, we have our dose of good news, followed by our weekly call to action. So as I just mentioned, we are starting this week's show in a little bit of a different way Uh, because it is recess week and because many of us will be attending rallies and picketing events. I thought maybe it'd be helpful to bring in Kathleen, who is a member of the group that I'm a member of, uh, Indivisible Washington's 8th District, to talk about a really great presentation that she gave at one of our recent meetings all about best practices for attending events like rallies and picketing events. So let us start by talking about what to do when you first arrive, because oftentimes it's a little chaotic with people milling around and not really knowing what to do. What is the first thing that you should be aware of? When you get to an event like that, it's a really good idea to know who the organizer of the event is. So you want to ask yourself, do I know this person? Do I know this organization? And what are their aims or goals? And uh, what is the plan for this event? And then follow their direction. But typically, a good thing to keep in mind is that one of our First Amendment rights is the right to free speech and and assembly. And we have the right to be on public property, which would include a sidewalk. Um, So stand on a sidewalk. You can stand there or walk there so long as you're not obstructing pedestrian traffic or uh, cars who are trying to get in and out of a driveway, for example. Right. And just so you mentioned driveway, parking lots oftentimes are private property. Correct. So if somebody comes along and asks you to move along, particularly if a like the law enforcement, I think, is something that people might get a little freaked out by uh, when they go to a you know, march or rally or picketing event. How do you, I mean, obviously you want to comply with what police officers say. Uh, So if they tell you to move out of this particular area, you comply, right? Yes, yes. You do want to comply with law enforcement because you, if you don't, you run the risk of being arrested. That said, we do have the right to free assembly, free speech. And so what is a good idea is to work with law enforcement and ask them what the problem is, what you can do to correct it. Uh, It may be that you are on private property and you didn't realize it. Um, So things like that. Talk to them. Um, The ACLU has a very nice uh, pocket wallet guide that gives you very succinctly information that is good to know. And you can pull that out, have it with you, pull it out and, and consult with the officer to find out what the problem is and how you can correct it. Ultimately, though, if they tell you that you have to disperse or move to another spot, that's what you should do, in my view. Yeah. And I suppose it really kind of depends on what your goals and aims are. In the indivisible movement, we're not really in the business necessarily of being disruptive in that way. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I mean, we feel very strongly about uh, holding our members of Congress accountable on, on being active and protecting ourselves and fellow citizens from what we believe is a very harmful 
agenda from the Trump administration. That said, I think our, our profile or typically our folks are not the kind of people who are out to engage in in angry or, or threatening kinds of protest or speech. And we actually see ourselves as patriots in our particular indivisible group and see ourselves as simply exercising our First Amendment rights and wanting to achieve uh, positive change in society. You talk about reporters and media, and oftentimes we have seen them uh, and in some form or other at these events. Uh, and you say that you don't have to make a statement if you don't want to, if you're approached by a member of the media. Uh, if you do choose to make a statement, what's the best thing to do? Do you want to check with the organizer of the group to make sure that it's consonant with what the uh, event is about? or? I think it's a good idea. Backing up, I, you're right. A person does not have to speak to the reporters. They're doing their job. They're there to to report on the news, and your event is probably part of the news. But being friendly with them, talking to them on background, if you aren't comfortable giving a statement, you can politely indicate that. You can walk them over to the event organizer, introduce them, because the event organizer very likely may have a couple of folks identified who want to speak to the reporters. If you choose to speak to a journalist, I think it's really best to share your own personal perspective or your own personal narrative about why you're there, why you care so much. Uh, All of us are together in this loosely uh, affiliated group of folks, but there's no... um, entity that we're speaking on behalf of. We're all individuals and citizens who have come together out of shared interests and shared concerns. And so telling our personal stories, always a good thing to do. Let's talk about, as we're talking about the media, let's talk about, because you stress this in the presentation, the image that we want to be putting forth, particularly within the indivisible group. Um, you you have in the presentation, and I, I'm gonna I'll share a link to this on the on the uh, the website. But uh, you have two photos side by side. One is of a group of people who are picketing. Uh, in a very civil manner, getting their message across. And then you have another slide that shows people very angry, very worked up. Obviously, we want to go with the former as opposed to the latter. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, we want to be really mindful of uh, the image that we are, that we're conveying onto people who, who watch what we're doing, who happen to drive by, who happen to witness our, our event. We are trying to bring attention to the issues and not to a an event that could be seen as threatening where people are using potentially, you know, vile language or threatening posture, getting very angry, fists in the air, that sort of thing. It's um, We're pretty committed to using inclusive, respectful language and tone because we view the issues as very serious, but we really do want to remain respectful and uh, be principled in the presence and the images that we create. Let's talk about emotions at events like this. You talk about avoiding confrontations. Obviously, people are moved to get involved with activism because they're upset about what's happening. So emotions can run very high. Um, If someone from, let's say, the Trump side of things uh, shows up and wants to engage with you, what do you do? It's important to realize that there are emotions all across the spectrum and that there are going to be people who disagree with us. There may be counter-protesters. There may be people driving by who are angry and, you know, let loose an obscene gesture. It's really important to not respond in kind. It's important to remain calm, 
can remain with that principled presence that we're aiming for. And if that involves having to stop and take a few deep breaths and and calm yourself down in the face of anger or provocation, that's what you should do. You never want to respond in kind. If necessary, you walk away from the person if they're actually there on the sidewalk with you. you if you're holding a sign, you want to hold that sign in a way that isn't viewed as an obs- physical obstruction or uh, as in a threatening way. Um, it's even a good idea to not stand face-to-face with the person because that can be viewed as a threatening, aggressive stance. Turn your body slightly at an angle so that you're not facing directly into that person looking them in the eyes. Those are all techniques that you can use to hopefully de-escalate what could be an emotional charged situation. But ultimately, if it gets to it, move farther down the sidewalk, walk away from the aggression. I think something else to keep in mind is the fact that, and this is just sort of the nature of the beast, the media will be drawn to things like that. And so if there is a confrontation, the cameras are going to come and that's going to be what leads. And so it's important to keep that in mind, right? Right. And imagine an image where you are there on the street, you have your sign perhaps, and you are confronted by someone who's very angry and literally yelling in your face. And if you remain impassive and calm and respectful, or if you walk away calmly um, and cede that, that space because that is a space you don't want to be in, in that violent, angry space, that creates a pretty powerful image. There have also been reports of people being planted in events who are there to stir things up and make an event look violent or out of control. What's a good strategy for if you encounter somebody like that who clearly seems to be there to just kind of, you know, stir things up? One thing you can do is go talk to the event coordinator and assuming you know who that person is and and explain what's going on. If it's a large uh, event, they may not know what's going on. If you feel threatened or in any way aggressed and law enforcement is there, talk to law enforcement. If it gets to that point and there's no law enforcement there, you can certainly contact law enforcement. We do have the right to be... uh, utilizing our free speech rights. And if someone is threatening you or engaging in something that feels threatening or is aggressive, you also have the right to protect yourself in a way, not in an aggressive way, but in a way that will um, alert the authorities to the situation. Hopefully just seeing you phone the police will de-escalate and the person might back off. But yeah, you have to be prepared for someone to be there, um, either truly, truly as someone who disagrees with you or as someone who's a plant, so to speak, who's there to stir it up. I'll just close on this because I think that this is something that uh, a lot of people are feeling but may not even want to talk about, and that's just nerves. Uh, going to an event like this or you know, some, some, some sort of you know, activist event for the first time, you don't really know what to expect. It can, be, it can be nerve-wracking. And so what would you say to somebody who is going to go to an event for the, the very first time who's kind of feeling nervous about it? You know, it's funny because I went on the Women's March and I was with four women who had never, ever done something like that before. And so that buddy system often is a really good one. Go with somebody you know, whether they've done that sort of thing or not before. Uh, it's good to, to be there with a buddy or with a couple friends. Um, if you go alone, because sometimes we do that, we're just drawn to the event and to the issue. Talk to people. Get to know them. Walk with them. Pick it with them. Um, and... Keep in mind that you are there for a reason. Think about the issues that spoke to you, that drove you to be at that place at that time on that day. And think about that ultimately 
you are there with other people of like minds and like concerns to hold a member of Congress accountable, to protect what we hold dear in this country, and to hopefully get us back to a place that we're not saying to ourselves, what happened to my country? I don't recognize this place any longer. We all hold certain traditions and values dearly, and that's what it's all about. Perfect place to leave it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Time now for this week's call to action, preceded, as we have been doing lately, by a bit of good news. First, let's start with some good news for journalism. eBay founder Pierre Omidyar and his wife Pamela just donated $100 million to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalism and to the Anti-Defamation League, all aimed at helping journalists. The money is also going to be used to counter hate speech around the world. So, hey, remember those original Planet of the Apes action figures complete with the tree fort set you couldn't live without when you found them on eBay? Well, part of the money that you paid for that is now going toward a good cause. And by you, I mean me. Uh, Next, Devin Nunes officially stepped down from his role as head of the House Intelligence Committee in any investigations involving the ties between Trump and Russia. One can imagine, and one can hope, that this will be the first step not only to his stepping down, but also stepping, let's say, away from Congress. Also, Democrats in Georgia have now raised over $8 million to help elect John Ossoff to fill Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price's vacant Senate seat. And finally, Maryland became the first state to enact a law to reimburse Planned Parenthood for its services if the organization suffers any federal cuts to its budget. I am hoping that we'll see maybe a few other blue states to follow suit. I'm looking at you, Washington. And now, time for this week's call to action. I have mentioned that it is recess week for Congress, so naturally the call to action is to attend a town hall meeting. Even if, as is the case with the 8th District, your congressman isn't even going to be there. If you do go, uh, a few questions to ask your member of Congress, his or her representative, or even the camera that will ultimately deliver your message to the congressperson. Uh, Because make no mistake, even the members of Congress who don't show up for their town halls will most definitely be watching the footage. So here in no particular order are some things that you might ask your MOC if you get the opportunity. Uh, Number one, is your MOC committed to opposing any bill that takes away health care from their constituents? Do they think it's acceptable for our country to be bombing Syria while turning away its refugees? Will they call on an independent, stress independent, commission to investigate Trump's ties to Russia? And do they support the Trump administration's cuts to the EPA? These are just for starters. You're a smart, engaged person, as most people in the Indivisible Movement are, so I'm sure you will have some of your own. Oh, also, there are a number of marches coming up during the month of April that you can put on your calendar, and we will be talking to our friend Rich Smith from The Stranger about many of them on Thursday, so stay tuned for that. But for now, do plan on heading to a town hall. Oh, and as I have said, if you are in the 8th District, or even if you just want to head out from your district and show some solidarity. There is an empty chair town hall in Covington on Wednesday, April 12th for Dave Reichert, who will be decidedly not present. Just checked with his office this morning on that. So 
Come out and take part if you can. Hit me up at WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com for details if you need them. In any event, town halls, hit one up. And that is this week's Call to Action. My guest this week is David McDevitt. David is a Democratic candidate in the congressional race against Jamie Herrera Butler in Washington's 3rd District, an area that includes Olympia as well as points south and west. I started our discussion by bringing up something that McDevitt mentions on his campaign website, which is to say that he is not a career politician. He is a statesman. And I asked him what specifically he meant by that. I think a lot of people getting involved in politics and they start out and they run for city council and then they run for some state office and then they run for something else. And that's kind of the career path, the career approach that they take. And to me, the differential is a question of representation. I'm really disconcerted with the representation that we've been getting from our career politician down here in southwestern Washington. Yeah, we'll get to her in a second. I have some very specific questions about her. And I I feel really strongly that, you know, we're not getting the kind of representation that we deserve, both on a federal level and in some cases within the state. Well, let's talk about your background. Um, first, I, I want to talk about your education. You, you have several degrees. Uh, you have an MBA and a JD, so that's law and business. A law degree right. is pretty standard prerequisite for a member of Congress, but I'm curious to know how your business degree informs your political philosophy. Well, I, you know, when I went to business school, one of the key elements of being in business school was talking about business ethics. And associated with that was this notion of social responsibility. And I think over the last 30 or 40 years, the practice of business has been changed in a way where Wall Street has caused businesses to be significantly more focused on profits and profits alone without tying in the idea that we have a social responsibility. And as a consequence, we've seen uh, the degradation of our education systems. We've seen the uh, degradation of businesses contributing and paying in their fair share. 20% of the large corporations don't pay any taxes at all. So the way I think about it is kind of that progressive idea that, you know, it's really a great thing that we have an opportunity to make and earn more, but going along with that promise of being able to make more is the responsibility or the duty to pay in a fair share, maybe even a greater portion, because it makes our society function much better. Right. And we've gotten away from that. I want to discuss the politics that are specific to your district at Washington's third. Uh, Washington's third went for Trump in 2016, 49 to 42, but they went for Obama in 2008, 52 to 46. So technically that makes it a swing district. Uh, It has had Democrats hold that seat, the representative seat in the past, but it's fairly blue collar once you get outside of Olympia. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is actually the the incomes in southwestern Washington are in the forty to fifty thousand dollar range at the median, and I I think the district though between two thousand and eight and two thousand and 
2016 has really changed. For one thing, in 2011, it was there was a redistricting that took place as a function of the 2010 census. And so we released a large part of the Thurston County component of uh, the district that existed prior. And we added in Skamania County and Klickitat County, which are more rural and tied to other industries. Uh, in Skamania, it happens to be forestry. So we got a lot more I'd say reddish purple. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that that aspect of it changed, and um, you know it's still a toss-up. I think I think it's a tough district to win. As, as on previous shows, you've acknowledged that uh, Jamie had sixty-one point eight percent, and Jim Moeller received thirty-eight. And even going back a little bit further, uh, Herrera Butler in 2012, 160-40 over John T. Haugen. In 2014, she beat uh, Bob Dingethal by 61.5 to 38.5, which was pretty much an identical margin to uh, how she beat Mueller in 2016. What is your theory as to why she keeps winning by such large margins? Well, there's a couple of different things. One is who shows up to vote. And then the the second component of it is it is actually a, a relatively red area if you look at it uh, closely. But I think the difference for 2018 is going to be that um, we're starting to see some of the activity and some of the decision making that's going on in the new administration. Even like today where Mitch McConnell has... Right, right. Um, and I should mention that we're recording this on April 6th, but he has pulled the nuclear you know, pulled option. The nuclear option. He's pulled the nuclear option, and they're going to put Gorsuch in there, hell or high water. And, you know, um, I think a lot of people may be rather upset about that. So we may see, like we saw in 2010, a backlash to the what some people perceive to be the imposition of Obamacare. We saw a backlash in 2010. I'm thinking that there's entirely a possibility that we'll see a backlash in uh, 2018. Right. And historically speaking, the first midterm election for a president during the first term is often a referendum. And you'll see either one or both houses shift. Uh, In this case, the Senate is unlikely, but the House is definitely in play. So that's on your side. So. I want to ask kind of a tricky question. Um, Because you check so many of the boxes of what progressives hold dear, and I think you may identify yourself as a progressive. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, No, I do. Okay. Well, so you want to overturn Citizens United. You champion LGBT rights. You support single-payer health care. You not only affirm the science of climate change, but you oppose fracking. You support reducing fossil fuel dependency. So... As we've said, the third district is a purple district. So I guess in terms of electability, how do you square away your progressive stances with the more moderate voters of your district? Well, that's a good question. And I'm going to say that I've had so many conversations with people about the Second Amendment rights. And as an attorney, I support the Second Amendment. At the same time, I support the idea that there can be and should be reasonable regulations. So I'm able to have those conversations with people that are gun owners and gun rights advocates because I support their having them. However, I'm a member and active with a group called Moms Demand Action. And what we're 
about with Moms Demand Action is about training and about gun safety so that children and kids and people that haven't had the training and experience aren't going to create problems for themselves either by way of suicide or by accidental death for anybody else. And so I talk about that issue, and, and I think people are pretty comfortable and amicable about that. And I think there's probably uh, an issue that kind of goes hand in hand with the Second Amendment, which is uh, environmental rights. Uh, A lot of people who are sportsmen, hunters, people like that, they definitely support environmental rights. And so I I figure that's probably an area that sort of dovetails with that. Yeah, sure it is. And on the environmental on the environmental issue, you know, I'm opposed to things like the coal trains and the oil trains and the methanol plant that all of which are happening down here and I'm opposed to them because I'm concerned about the health and well-being of the people that live in these areas the fossil fuel industry has been really good about targeting communities that have economic uh, challenges as places they want to bring their industry to but the loss of health is probably weighs heavier for me what and I'm just going to claim ignorance here. What are the employment statistics like for the third district? Um, you know, we're pretty close to about the way it is across the state. I mean, I think from the last time I heard. So, what differentiates the employment statistic all around the country, though, is that more of the jobs that are getting created are either part-time jobs, so they count as employed, or they're paying wages that are significantly lower than the living wage. So our fight is really about trying to get living wages for more people and couple that with uh, rising rents. And in Clark County, the rents are going up faster than pretty much anywhere else in the nation. And so in terms of, and I know that there has been a lot of discussion about the blue collar uh, worker and Indeed, when you look at the voter statistics between 2008 and 2016, in 2008, as I said, they went for Obama, and in 2016, they went for Trump, uh, voters in your district. I'm talking majority, of course, meaning that there is a certain percentage that voted for both, which seems sort of incomprehensible to a lot of people, but it's true. And one of the ways in which I think Obama really tried to address that was to go out and really listen, kind of do his listening tours and really talk to people Mm -hmm. and make a lot of one-on-one contact and relationships. Uh, Are you doing the same thing? I assume you are. What, and so what are the, the kinds of things that you're hearing? Well, I've always made, so I've been doing this for the last two years, and I've made a concerted effort to go to every single one of the counties to a variety of meetings, whether they're Democratic Central Committee kinds of meetings or move-on meetings or indivisible meetings or progressive meetings. And I try to meet as many folks as I can, and I ask them about what's going on there. And... Just to give you an example, um, last cycle, I was out in South Bend and Raymond, and I visited the plant where they process and handle all of the oysters and clams. Uh, I visited a plant where they process and 
they cut all of the logs. Uh, and the forestry industry has uh, lost a lot of employees because of the automation. Uh, I watched this guy cutting the edges of the, the logs off with a tool that looked like a joystick. You know, mm. it was pretty slick. It was a lot of fun to watch. And so I, I see the kind of things that are uh, going on. And, and we visited a marijuana grow facility, uh, which is starting to blossom uh, more down here as well. And and so what are people saying? And I'm, I'm particularly interested to hear what I think think would be the Venn diagram between the people who voted for Trump and the people who voted for Obama, uh, because those are the swing voters and those are the people who the Democrats ultimately are going to need to win back to their side that, you know, the Democrats used to be the party of unions and labor and the, the, those people have drifted away. So what's your plan to kind of win a lot of those people back? So when we when we dissect and look at the spectrum of political ideologies and the way people think about things, you know, it, it goes all the way from the far left progressives. There's right wing progressives now, too. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And but there's a whole huge group in the middle. The people that I would characterize as independents, whether they're Tea Party people, whether they're libertarians, whether they're Green Party people, whether they're uh, democratic socialists, to coin, um, you know, Bernie Sanders term. So it's those people in the middle that I have to reach. Fortunately, I was certified or vetted rather as a Bernie crat. And so we'll talk about that. What what, what was that process like? um, Well, there are numbers of there are a large number of groups throughout the nation that are interested in trying to vet people to see if they fit their idea of what a Bernie crat is. And so it's answering questionnaires and talking to them about what it is that you believe. Okay, so, well, because this is the first time that I've heard that term. How do they define a Bernie crat? Um. Well, I I think if you if we read that our revolution book and uh, which he put out, he basically outlines all of his ideas. So social progressivism is is really kind of what they're talking about. So social progressivism, I would characterize it as almost maybe a populist sure. progressivism. Okay, talking social safety net there, uh, and I I. And not to get too into policy, but I would like to talk budget for a moment because Congress controls the purse strings of government. And one of the ways that things get deadlocked in Congress each year when the budget comes up is basically how to square away the non-discretionary spending of programs like Social Security, Medicare with discretionary spending. Um, A lot of what you propose as a lawmaker does cost money. And for the record, I agree with most of what you're proposing, but I'm curious to know how you would pay for it? Where do you cut? Where do you get more revenue? Well, there's a couple of things that have been going on. If we're paying attention over the years, we've been having this under both Bush Sr. and and Bush Jr. uh, We've been seeing this approach. And then with the new administration, the idea that tax reductions for the wealthiest should take place. It's Reaganomics, right? Okay. And then and so now you're cutting revenues and then you're saying, oh, we have a spending problem. We have a spending problem. Well, really? And then every every cycle uh, as well, uh, we've seen, well, we've got to beef up our military. We've got to beef up our military. And in this last budget, $52 billion more in expenditures on military. 
with the same battle cry of, well, we've got a spending problem, we've got a spending problem. And I think we need to kind of stop the insanity. And so in order to address some of the concerns about Social Security, there's a new bill that's being addressed that's just been put in place yesterday or today. And it's about expanding Social Security. What does that mean? That means we're going to lift the cap subject to the Social Security premium that gets paid. Uh, and we're going to extend the benefits a little bit. And, and we're going to change the cost of living factor to one appropriate to the elderly. So the revenue comes from maybe not spending as much as the next 10 countries combined for military and uh, maybe not giving back so much in the way of tax reductions for the wealthy and corporations, but rather insisting that they pay a fair share and trying to have a continuation of the safety net that's made this country really uh, a wonderful country to be in. I want to talk about the Indivisible Movement because that's what this program is 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 here to talk about uh, ultimately you reference the indivisible movement on your facebook page and you have actually even kindly shared links to this program thank you uh, what are your feelings about the indivisible movement well with the election in november and the act activity that's gone on between uh december january february a lot of people a lot more people have been wanting to get involved in some kind of way to protest some of the concerns they have about what the current administration is doing. And it's bringing in a significant number of people that are independents, even people that are left-leaning on the right wing or centrists on the right wing. Bringing, yeah, them, a few in, of those. bringing yeah. them in and bringing in the independents and bringing in Democrats or the, the Berniecrats that felt slighted by the party. And so I, I think the indivisible movement is really about we the people. And that's the first three words of the Constitution. We the people. We're the ones that make the decisions. We have to contribute. We have to participate. And so this idea that the indivisible movement is taking hold, and it's been monumental, is that it's not necessarily about party politics, that being, you know, Republican or Democrat, but rather uh, something more uh, welcoming and something more cohesive for all of us. The 2018 election is likely going to be one of the most possibly the most uh, critical of our lifetimes. Uh, <laughs> any last thoughts that you would like to leave us on as to how you'd like to see things change? You know, I, I really got into this because I want to help as many people as I possibly can. And if I'm elected, I hope to be able to accomplish some of that. People here aren't represented as well as they could be. And I would spend a lot more time and effort trying to accomplish representing uh, the people and what their needs are. Well, David McDevitt, thank you so much for coming on the program, man. Hey, thank you. I appreciate your time. And uh, I'm fully supportive of your efforts. I'll continue to put the word out that you're putting out good material for everyone to see. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and, and good luck with the campaign, man. You bet. We'll probably talk again, I, I suspect. Uh, we've got a year and a half before the end of this. so yeah, It's a long trek. Take your vitamins. <laughs> you bet it is. All right. Hey, thanks, <laughs> Stephanie. 
And that is it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. Uh, one last time, if you are in District 8 or nearby and you would like to make it out to the Reichert Empty Chair Town Hall, hit me up for info at WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, that is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. That, of course, is the email address that you can use to get in touch with any questions or comments. And I very much hope you do. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to our guest, David McDevitt, and thank you, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.